Hey, Mac, when does deer season start? Well, if you want the best deer herd possible, Lanny, you need to start right now. Right now. That's, That's why right. we're starting our promotion. I mean, we've got a deer season starts now promotion on plantbiologic.com where you can pick up our Game Changer soybeans, our forage soybeans, and our spring protein peas. While you're there, you might as well go ahead and pick up some brassicas like our final forage and winter bowls. Yeah, stock up for the cool season planting right now. Listeners to the GK Podcast, if you use coupon code GKPOD, you can save an additional 10% off our entire selection of warm season, cool season, and clover food plot seed. Get started today and visit plantbiologic.com for an unforgettable fall. I am Jeff Foxworthy, and welcome to Gamekeeper Podcast. If you want to learn more about farming for wildlife and habitat management, then, buddy, you are in the right place. Join the Gamekeeper crew direct from Mossy Oak Land Enhancement Studio as they discuss the latest wildlife and habitat management practices, news, and, of course, hunting. There's no telling what you'll learn, but I'm going to tell you, I bet it's interesting. Enjoy. In three, two, one. All right, everybody, here we are. Welcome to West Point, Mississippi, the Gamekeeper Studios. It is awfully hot outside right now. Lady. It is heating up. Summer is kind of creeping in on But it. I'm it glad that I have a flannel shirt yeah. on. Yeah. It's yeah. show off the companion's That's line. Right. Well, it's kind of cool in here. It is cold. It's freezing. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. why you got shorts on. Yeah. <laughs> so, Dudley, how is the Wangbone uh, yeah, the development call coming? The development of well, the Well, we're still talking about it and working on how we can make it happen, but it's going to happen. I think we're going to have to get a bigger baculum. <laughs> maybe so. Well, Don't you think? Yeah, maybe yeah. we need a badger. It's a little bit bigger than a walrus. Walrus has, walrus has a vacuum. You should that start would, with the walrus. That would be more like a elk uh, uh, bugle. Yeah, a wang bone bugle. A bu- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did y'all have anybody say anything to you about the show starting off last week with you talking about a vacuum? Was it last week? Well, it was either last week or the week before. Uh, Max said something to me. <laughs> I'm kind of hard to find, you know. Yeah, you know how expensive. Speaking of hard to find, where is the LS? The I need the LS tractor. Oh, did you want to use it? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know, but somehow it ended up back in my house again. So you you said, oh, I'll never use that small tractor with all those attachments. And I've been, you know, that is the handiest. And I can't find it. No, this is one of the handiest tools I've. Put my hands on it's it. It's a strong that. little tractor. It's a great little tractor. And you can get in and out of places really easily and, of course, haul, dig. I mean, Richie, Richie finally brought it back, you know. So I was just proud to get it. I was just keeping it at my house for safekeeping because I uh, – what is it? Mike has fact-checked a rather large baculum, I think. All right. <laughs> I have. You can get a four-and-a-half-foot uh, baculum for $8,000. God, man. Those is, that, is that even legal? I mean, can you buy an animal? That might part? be the most expensive elk call I've ever heard of. I think you have to be eighteen to purchase it. <laughs> yeah. So let me say this: our, our guest today is probably going to want to share this <laughs> this uh, podcast with maybe some of his colleagues, Associates. and I, I, we yeah. may be embarrassing him. And uh, this is a scientific uh, we, discussion. We talk about much weirder stuff, honestly. <laughs> so we're we're this is fine. <laughs> well, let me go ahead and introduce. We Absolutely. have got I, I, this is guys. He's got the most interesting name, and then he's got a just a fascinating job. But he could be, you know, in, uh, in contention for being the most interesting man in North America. My hand, yeah. yeah. So, Doctor <laughs> Coulter Chipwood. 
Not big game doc, right? <laughs> He's it, yeah. His Instagram handle is at big game doc. If I got that right. That's right. Yep. So, and he's like flying around, catching antelopes and chasing wolves in Alaska. And elk. Elk. And he's from North Georgia. I mean, he's so got the best. He's got it going on. He, he, he really does. Yeah. Yeah. I like to think so. And I think he's working some fishing in all that, too, from mm-hmm. what I understand. That's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Coulter, how do you get Chipwood? What kind of name is that? Great question. I don't know. <laughs> um, what well, it pops up here and there. Uh, there was apparently uh, a race car driver somewhere by that name because that's the most common comment I get is they think I'm related to so and so Chitwood, who was a. I think he's actually like a stunt car driver uh, and like a, you know, trick trick driver, or whatever. Um, but uh, but I don't know who that is, and I don't think I'm related to him. So uh, I'm just a North Georgia hillbilly who. Managed to figure out how to go and chase and catch a bunch of animals uh, for science. So. Well, right. so you're with the Oklahoma State University, and then you've, mm-hmm. you, when you look at uh, when you're reading his credentials, he's uh, the. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong now, but you're the assistant professor of natural resources, resource ecology and management. Yeah, that's our department name. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so what's your title? Well, assistant professor is kind of the the academic speak for like your rank, you know. So I'm a new, fairly new professor. I'm in my third year now at Oklahoma State, um, but my expertise is in big game ecology. So I do a lot of work on game species, especially things like white-tailed deer, wild turkey, elk, pronghorn, um, and do a lot of population ecology. And I do a lot of work in forested systems. So I actually I actually took a position here that was a new position uh, designed to focus on uh, on forested systems in Oklahoma, because fun fact, Oklahoma is not just flat and windswept everywhere. About 28% of the state is forested. Um, but, you know, for those, those of us in the southeast, like where I'm from in Georgia, there's, there's trees everywhere. Um, but in Oklahoma, of course, we transition out into the into the prairies pretty quick. So so I do a little bit of everything when it comes to taxonomy, but but almost always focused on game species. You know, you look pretty young to be a doctor. Is this some kind of Doogie mm-hmm. Hauser thing? <laughs> you got started really I, young I, in life. Yeah, I think that's what my parents and brother think. But uh, yeah, I guess I paid my dues over the years, and I went to school quite a few years. So <laughs> here we are. <laughs> wow. Well, Oklahoma, Lanny, you've turkey hunted in Oklahoma. Oh, yeah. A, there's a lot of wildlife in Oklahoma. Oklahoma's a great state to hunt in, no doubt. Duck hunting in Oklahoma. Wild know? quail. Yeah. yeah. You got yeah, uh, some uh, pretty big whitetails there, Mr. Uh, trophy Hunter, too. You know? Mm-hmm. you know, I killed one in Oklahoma. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine that. <laughs> yeah. They had to with call a, you in. With a muzzle yeah, It was so tough, nobody else could do it. They had to call for in and hire guns a lot of again. Fun. <laughs> for, folks, for folks that don't know about Oklahoma wildlife, I will say my kind of my big fun fact that was told to me as I was getting the position here, um, actually by Dwayne Elmore, who I believe y'all have had on the yeah. podcast before. Um, if you could do it all in one day, you could start in southeast Oklahoma, extreme corner of southeast Oklahoma in McCurtain County, and you could be in a swamp that looks like South Georgia looking at an alligator. And if you could make it, you know, beat tracks all day to the extreme northwestern tip of the panhandle, you're in Mesa country with choya cactus, hmm. elk, bighorn sheep, and pronghorn. Man, I might have and, taken a vacation. And blending, blending right into New Mexico and Colorado. So it is an amazing state from, from a diversity standpoint and is actually, uh, I think I get it right, 
the third most diverse state without, or, uh, behind only Texas and California. And if you exclude them, both of which are larger, you can exclude them because we're the most diverse state with no coastline. Hmm. So, um, you know, if you think about all the tornadoes you hear about, all those storm systems that come together over the southern Great Plains basically creates a massive uh, precipitation gradient, which leads to a massive gradient of floral communities, which leads to a massive gradient of associated animal communities. So I had no idea. I'm, you know, from Georgia. I lived in Missouri. I worked in Montana and I ended up in Oklahoma and uh, just a really fascinating place to work, especially for folks like us that are into game oh, yeah. species, because just about everything, I, th- I joked with somebody the other day, if only we had moose, I'd have just about everything here that yeah. I wanted to work on. I'll have to go north and west to get a moose project. But <laughs> Wow. And they have a great musical that Dudley enjoys, Oklahoma, the musical. There is there a musical <laughs> called Oklahoma? Yeah, a, yeah one okay. kind of award. Anyway, let's let's keep on going. So, so uh, he looked, Colton, that, he looked that up later. That. Yeah, he looked that up later. It's a good <laughs> <one>. <laughs> so, I only watch hunting shows on TV. <laughs> so before Inside we uh, before we get too far down in the weeds, this, Lanny, you're looking at me like, who is this episode brought to us by? Bobby, and I was thinking the same who thing. Who is this yep. episode brought to us? It's by. That's to exactly what I was thinking. Our friends at Nosler. All right. And I thought about, you know, we're going to talk about pronghorns, mm-hmm. and boy, a good bullet choice is very important when you're talking about shooting a long distance. Mm-hmm. And Nosler, uh, I don't think anybody makes a better bullet than Nosler. Yeah, the Nosler partition mm-hmm. has been a part of the hunting heritage for a long time and continue to innovate acubon ballistic yeah. tip yeah. yeah the ballistic mm-hmm. tip is what they're really they're so proud of right now yeah. mac have you mm-hmm. shot any of those ballistic tips they are unbelievably accurate he's still thinking and they're about color turkeys. coded 30 caliber is green mm-hmm. 270, yeah. is, 270 yellow. is yellow yeah, yeah. so I, all I 30 calibers are green yep okay. and then 6.5 does anybody know what color that is the need more? <laughs> it should be pink. It should be pink. <laughs> it's purple, I think. <laughs> Y'all are brutal. Uh, <laughs> the six point five is a, is a great caliber. Everybody needs more. I mean, you know. Yeah, yeah, we know. Well, anyway, I, so- I, I, I know two seventies yellow because yeah. our our my dad and I have shot those for years back in Georgia, and my and my and the green the three hundred eight. My brother shoots a three hundred eight, and and we've shot nozzles, now. There's a caliber uh, right there. Yeah, three hundred eight. Yeah, that yeah. is. So y'all go check out. Uh, next time you're going to purchase uh, a- uh, ammo for a big game hunt, Nosler is the bullet. No doubt about it. So. All right, guys. So look, we're going to talk today. We've got Coulter on here, and we've Richie, our esteemed producer, has spent some time. <laughs> we didn't need the horn for that. He, he horned himself. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we can edit that out later. Yeah. I got to keep that. We in. spent some time with Coulter in Oklahoma, uh, capturing some uh, pronghorn antelope. And uh, Coulter, could you tell us about this project? And just let's just open this up and start talking about it. Yeah. Um, well, kind of starting at the ten thousand foot view, uh, and I'll I'll end up using acronyms. So as a scientist, I need to define all my terms. Okay. So I'm going to say ODWC quite a bit. That is the state agency, state wildlife agency in Oklahoma, Oklahoma Department of Wildlife Conservation. So ODWC is the funder of this project. Um, It was initiated out of their need to learn more about the pronghorn in Oklahoma. And kind of long story short, um, over the last decade or so, um, 
their various lines of evidence that they have, the, the, the surveys that they do annually from the air or via uh, hunt, hunters, we're indicating a potential population decline, um, likely suspected to be driven by poor productivity. Um, and so um, basically that's where the project came from. Our job at OSU, along with our partners, we're working with uh, East Central University, which is a smaller school in Ada, Oklahoma, as well as uh, Cesar Clayburg Wildlife Research Institute, which is based at Texas A&M Kingsville. Um, the, those three institutions combined, we, we put forth a proposal to help ODWC address questions basically in two big prongs. Population demography, which is a fancy phrase for how are things living and dying and is the population growing or declining and at what rate. And then on the other prong, um, because we're putting collars out, we can look at all kinds of questions related to how they're selecting resources, how they move about the landscape, and how changing landscapes, potential barriers might affect how they move, which might feed back on things like mortality and survival. So the two prongs can be kind of separate, but they're also related. And that's the, that's the shortest summary I think I can give on the, on the project. But we can dive in wherever you want. Well, you know, I don't think I really, when I think about antelope, I think of Wyoming and some other western states. But I didn't realize that uh, Oklahoma had a, a huntable population out there. Yeah, um, and that's actually a great point. If people are thinking about the range of pronghorn, I mean, a really unique species, uh, endemic to North America, um, but they stretch from kind of the desert southwest all the way into central Canada. So Oklahoma is situated in a pretty unique spot because we're about as far south as they go. Uh, there's some a little farther south out uh, kind of New Mexico, Arizona, but, uh, but we're also about as eastward as they go. You don't have to come too deep into Oklahoma and from the west, like if you're driving out of New Mexico into our panhandle, once you come really through the panhandle and into the downstate part of Oklahoma, uh, we don't really expect to see pronghorn anymore. Hmm. So that, that also makes our project a bit unique because we're dealing with a native species right on the edge of its range. And, uh, and nowadays with, with, you know, climate variability, potential changes associated with that, uh, landscape changes, be it farming practices, uh, energy extraction, renewables, like, like putting in wind, uh, wind energy development, all of those things are kind of all happening in the core of the pronghorn range, but also on the fringes. And so uh, on the fringes, we're interested in, well, does that cause a contraction or does the population continue to do well? And so, um, so though ODWC cares about pronghorn within their borders because that's where they control the hunting, we also recognize that we're on the edge of the range. And, and what's happening in Oklahoma could affect the Texas panhandle, you know, northeast New Mexico, southeast Colorado, uh, southwest Kansas, because the pronghorn don't care about the boundaries, mm -hmm. right? We do. But, but all of those states all come together right there where our project is occurring. And, and I will just, while I mention that, put in a plug, all of those states have been engaged with us over email and phone calls. They know the project is occurring. They've all been super helpful with any sort of plan for how we might follow up on a mortality if it occurred inside their state. Uh, so even though we catch all of our adults within Oklahoma lands, um, we, 
we've got relationships built with all these states because they're all really interested in the outcome of our project as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. I'd say the antelope is a fascinating animal. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Speed yeah. goat. Isn't that what they call them? They, they do mm-hmm. call them speed Yeah, goat. it's yeah. like the only species we have that, in my opinion, that looks more like African plains game. Well, that's the comparison that gets made, actually, the, Af- the Africa comparison. But they're, they're actually unique in the sense that we, we call them antelope or we say pronghorn antelope, but they're not. They're not really. Um, and so, uh, again, that term endemic, um, well, it comes up quite a bit. But I, I'm always fascinated when in- endemic can mean really small areas. Like there's a butterfly that occurs only at Fort well, what was known as Fort Bragg, I believe they've now changed the name to Fort Liberty, but where I did my PhD work years ago, that butterfly occurs nowhere else in the world wow. except on that military base. So it's endemic to that military base. And so when I mentioned that earlier, um, and to your point, it looks like species that we would think about in Africa, but that actually also kind of makes it cool because it's the only thing we've got in North America that looks like that, and it doesn't occur on any other continent. So. Yeah. So they evolved on their own to be goat. like that. So it's a yeah. unique species. I mean, what's the closest thing it's related to? Gosh, I'd have to think about my my uh, my old charts, but uh, it'd be closer to giraffes than huh. than than some of the things you might think are close, like huh. like an elk. That's you pretty know. cool. Yeah. But uh, so yeah, really fascinating, really the unique physiology, <laughs> and this and really fast, yeah, fastest fastest land land animal in in North America. Yeah. Uh, you know, I know you're studying their population dynamics, and th- this may seem like a really basic question, but uh, you know, a couple three hundred years ago, they were able to run around wherever they wanted to, uh, and now we have barbed wire fences everywhere. Um, mm-hmm. I haven't really interacted with pronghorns much, but I remember when I was younger, uh, in junior high, I was on a trip in Wyoming and I watched an antelope, a pronghorn just run into a fence repeatedly. And I know that mm-hmm. sounds pretty tragic, but it just kept running into a fence and it died. Um, mm-hmm. I'm so, do uh, fences everywhere. I mean, does that affect their, their movements or do yeah, they just that- know how to jump them? Well, it's it's a little of both. I mean, the answer is there's quite a bit of emerging evidence that it does affect their movements. Um, and I've I've even got a colleague who who I worked with in Montana, and much of his dissertation was actually built around uh, what he kind of dubbed fence ecology, hmm. and pronghorn were his main study species. Um, and they will jump, and there's videos if you look around enough on Instagram and whatnot, like. But that's far more unique than them going under. So, so from a mitigation standpoint, a lot of what we're seeing now, if y'all have heard of wildlife-friendly fencing, mm-hmm. well, in particular, that can be really valuable for pronghorn because they're far more prone to go under that bottom strand. And so turning the bottom strand uh, into smooth wire or, um, or actually, I, I, and forgive me for forgetting the exact number of inches, but there's been some work done actually figuring out about what height we would want it at to where it's not going to affect you keeping your cattle in, but it'll, it allow the pronghorn to move more easily between pastures. Mm -hmm. So it's a big issue across the American West. And, and honestly, potentially one in Oklahoma, 
but uh, but again, this is the first time you know pronghorn of Oklahoma have been have been studied this intensely. Uh, so we don't know if something like that will emerge as important, but we suspect that landscape factors like roads and and uh, and fencing could be affecting movement even even in Oklahoma. Yeah. So what have y'all learned in this study that uh, that that has really surprised you about the antelope? I tell you, that's a great question, and my. I'm going to jump right to my favorite answer right now. I, this might change over time if we revisit this in another year or two, um, because obviously we're we're pulling in data over many years here. We're, we're, we're in year two of four as far as the intensity of our data collection. But when we started this, and I'm not throwing anybody under the bus here, I won't say any names, whether they were some game wardens, some some ODWC biologists, or even even hunters that we had talked to, landowners, there was a lot of predictions about where – the pronghorn that we tagged were going to go. And when I say tagged, I mean we catch them with the helicopter, put that collar around their neck, and and there was conversations about, well, we think there's this little kind of subpopulation in this area, and we think they're probably going to bounce back and forth into Kansas, and then this group's going to bounce back and forth into Texas, and this group's for sure going to bounce back and forth into New Mexico. And I've said this to a bunch of people, so I'll say it again right now. If, I, if you handed me a map of the pronghorn points right now. They just, the, the technicians and the students just printed it out and here's a bunch of dots on a map. And I went and subbed in central North Carolina landscape behind there. And then I went up and handed it to y'all. Y'all would go, oh, cool. You tag some whitetails in central North Carolina because their, their home ranges are not seasonally shifting in a way, at least crudely, like as far as just an observation, me looking at them on a page, we're not seeing any really notable seasonal shifts in movement, no obvious migratory behavior. We've only had a handful of individuals that were caught in Oklahoma end up in another state. Hmm. Like I, for example, I don't, I don't think, and again, I'm, I'm not looking at the points every day. So if I'm wrong, so be it. I'm not aware that a tagged pronghorn has crossed into Colorado yet. I'm not aware that one has crossed into Kansas yet. I'm aware of one for sure that has gone into Texas and, and several, uh, four, four, between four and 10 that have moved back and forth into New Mexico. We had several uh, last spring, spring of 22, um, move many miles into New Mexico, drop their fawns, donate those fawns to some New Mexican coyotes, and hmm. then march march all the way back to oklahoma back to where they had been tagged so um so so i guess that's a kind of a long answer to your question but i think we we didn't know what to expect when it came to what those callers were going to tell us about how they were using this larger landscape and we were all surprised to find most of them appear to be homebodies Hmm. so interesting yeah well just just looking at them you would think that they travel a very long distance you know as Mm -hmm. is the norm just based on the way you see them running around. Yeah, and based on other areas where people do pronghorn work, like you mentioned in, in Wyoming and Montana, I mean, we, we, I say we, science in general, but other people have documented, you know, fairly notable, fairly long-distance migrations, um, but they're likely driven by environmental factors that maybe don't affect us in the low latitudes where we don't have really severe winters, you know, and major elevational uh, changes that could allow them to get it better forage. Um, but, it, but either way, I still think it's neat because many people predicted that the, that they were going to move a lot more and knock on wood, 
in the first two years of data collection, we're just not seeing a lot of evidence of that kind of movement. Interesting. So, do y'all have bucks and does? Uh, yes, sir. Yeah, we, we went heavy on the female side because of that population dynamics component that we alluded to earlier. Um, so when we started, for example, our we had 100 collars the first year, and we put 20 on bucks and 80 on does. And that was because in order to uh, get at the reproductive information, we wanted to be biased toward the females. And we used the females in order to capture uh, the fawns. So, uh, so having more females collared gives us more chances to detect uh, uh, that a female has given birth and then be able to go in and capture one or both. They usually have twins. I think you know, most of y'all probably know that. Most of your listeners probably know that. But twinning is quite common you know, with pronghorns. So whether we collar one of them or two of them, uh, the more females we have collared, the more chances we have to put collars on the neonates. Hmm. Well, so I want to ask, when you put a collar on a buck, is is the hunting community out there, uh, do, do they say, oh, okay, that, there's some research going on, I'm not going to shoot that one, or is it, or is it like uh, the people get excited about a chance to shoot a collar? Like a banded mallard, yeah. Yeah, well <laughs> – and that, so that's a great analogy, and this is a good a good topic. And I'll I'll say the answer is both. Um, we've had one hunting season since we started. So you know, again, we we collared our first adults uh, February of twenty two, which means the fall hunting season last you know fall and winter of twenty two as we bled oh. into twenty three was the first opportunity to test this. And um, there's some sciency stuff that might bore people, but at the end of the day. ODWC did not make them off limits. In other words, it is not illegal as of right now for an Oklahoma hunter to look up and say, there's a buck with a collar. I have a buck tag. I want to shoot it. Bang. What we like, of course, there's information on that collar on how to turn it back in um, because, you know, it's pretty expensive equipment. We like to get it back. um, But we also like to know, well, would the hunter have made a different choice had they seen the you know, whether they saw the collar or not. Yeah. And actually, we've had a couple different hunters actually shoot legally. I'm talking not talking about poaching now. Legal hunters, whether a doe or a buck, in two cases I'm familiar with last fall, they didn't actually see the collar. Like one guy, uh, he's actually a, a cooperating landowner. And, and I, again, I'm not going to say any names, but he panicked and he, he called a grad student that's working on black bears out there and thought, oh, no, I've done something wrong here. I've killed this doe he had a doe tag it was like the last day of the season it was the last doe in the group and he was about to lose them and he didn't see the collar and he killed her walks up to her and goes "Uh uh-oh well that's actually perfectly legal but it's good for us to know because bobby your question is quite relevant if if all of our hunters went out there and targeted them (laughs) then certainly we can't say anything about true risk of hunting mortality because that's super biased right Mm -hmm. Uh, but it also means that we've spent thousands and thousands of dollars on these collars and now we've got to hold them in our hand again until the next time the helicopter flies Mm -hmm. we can put them back out Mm -hmm. so we in an ideal world hunters would do exactly what they would have done that day had they not seen the collar so if it's your one day to hunt and you're going to shoot the first buck that walks out great but if you hunt for five days and you circle all the way back to the place you saw that collared buck the first day and you've passed over 10 others. We like people to at least tell us that because that means they, they likely sought out the collar. 
Does that does that kind of answer your question? Yeah, Bob? yeah, yeah, it does. And I, I think at the end of the day, it, you would probably prefer that they not shoot an animal that's got a collar. When, when in doubt, yes, and that's because the that is by far and away a tangential objective to what this project is about. You know, hunting mortality is a component of things that can kill pronghorn in Oklahoma, but we didn't set out to evaluate the true risk. You know, from from a hunting standpoint. Mm-hmm. So you're absolutely right. If folks are listening and they have the choice and they and they don't care which doe they shoot or which buck they shoot, uh, we would certainly rather they just shoot one that doesn't have a collar on it. Um, and that, that makes everybody's life easier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, get yeah. some data they need too. Yeah. Glad you asked, and, Bobby. And, and, yeah, that's right. Dudley, you got a question? Well, um, so can you tell us a little bit about these private landowners and, and how they contribute to, to the project? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, simple, simple answer is without, without the participation of private landowners and ranchers in Oklahoma, there would be no pronghorn project. Hmm. There is there, you know, Oklahoma like Texas is a very private land dominated state. There's not enough public land out there. Uh, there are some public lands out there. There's national grasslands in the kind of Southwestern part of our panhandle that, that kind of bleeds into Texas uh, that's the Rita Blanca National Grasslands. There's um, Black Mesa State Park. Um, there's a bunch of state school um, trust land. And and many of y'all and probably your listeners, particularly those that hunt out west, boy, I had to learn that one real quick when I moved from Montana because in Montana, that state land, you look at something like Onyx Maps, that's that's publicly accessible. But in in Oklahoma, all of that is leased out for mostly for grazing. So uh, if you don't have a subsequent lease for hunting or permission uh, from the person who's got the grazing rights, um, it's not public. So if folks are looking at their maps right now going, well, I see this, this, and this, it's almost all private. And so uh, huge thank you to the landowners out there that provide access because we need a place to be able to put the net over the top of those adults sit the sit the helicopter down for long enough to jump out do our i mean it's less than five minutes to process an adult that's called out of the helicopter um but as y'all know we're you know we're very respectful of private property rights and if somebody says you can't touch the skids down then we can't touch the skids down you know we can Mm -hmm. we could theoretically fly over their ranch to get to another ranch but we need their permission in order to touch the helicopter down let a crew member out to collar that adult and then you fast forward to the spring, same thing applies when we drive up in a pickup truck on a county road and we look out in the pasture and there's a there's a collared doe nursing her fawn. Well, except for the road ditch right there, we can't we can't go into that pasture unless those private landowners uh, are given permission. So um, it's a huge lift for our team, uh, both for the agency and for the students, um, to make sure that we try to keep all those relationships. Um, but it's vital to the success of the project. And without without those private landowners, we wouldn't get this information. You know, when he, we talk, he mentions the spring. Can you go through how you figure out that this theme, this doe pronghorn is having a baby? Because I think the wind is pretty tight on you guys to be able to do something. It is. Um, so when we put the collars out um, <clears throat> and and in academic speak, we have something called fix rate, right? So the collar is around the doe's neck 
And we have programmed it to take a GPS location every some number of hours, whether it's two, three, five. We have some control over that. And we make those decisions based on other objectives and battery longevity, you know, because the more points you take and the more transmissions to the satellite you have, the quicker that collar dies. So what we do as we get towards spring, we can remotely command those collars to take more locations and to send us that data more frequently. So what happens is in March, everybody does whatever. In April, everybody does whatever. But as we start moving into May, the students start sending commands to all the does, maybe not the bucks, but to all the does saying, please, you know, you're basically telling the caller via satellite, please take a location every hour. Please send me those locations every eight hours. So, so our crews are out there as we get into mid-May, they're getting a dump of points, theoretically, from all 80 females about every eight hours. And, and between the points and some algorithms that we can run that look at clustering behavior. So if you imagine, y'all have all seen dots on a map, you know, in these research projects. Well, you got this pronghorn that moves all over, and then all of a sudden, it's dropping a lot of points in one spot. It's forming a little cluster. We actually run it through some programs that do a cluster analysis and will kind of flag the most likely females that we need to look at the next day. Hmm. And, and the rest of it is all observational. Then we have crews that go out. They put eyes on that female. And I don't want to be rude here. I'm not making judgment. But when they're real pregnant, they're big. And when they go from big one day to not big the next day, Marriage you they've, had their, they've had their fun. That's it. That's what you need to know. And you, and they get pretty good at it to the point that you're driving down the road. And it's like, oh, well, there's first of all, there's three collared does all together. Well, usually they kind of separate from their from their mm-hmm. friends uh, to have the baby. So when I see them all together, I'm already thinking not pregnant. And then I look at them, they all turn sideways. And I'm like, that one looks like it swallowed a whiskey barrel. She's as big as a battleship. That one's got big sides. They're all still they're all still pregnant. But then if I come back to that group the next day and two of them are still over here and look big, but the other one is now a mile over there, has been off by herself all night, and we drive up on her and she's back to looking pronghorn skinny, okay, now we're going to watch her. And after that, it's a very observational process where the crews literally keep her in sight because here in a little while, she's going to go nurse the baby. Mm -hmm. And when we see that happen, We've got spotters sometimes in one truck, sometimes in two trucks, and we let them nurse. We let we don't try to disturb the situation, but once they rebed, once that neonate rebeds, we've got the spot marked. And if it's real far away, we're using range finders. You know, like I'll be calling out ranges from the passenger seat while somebody else has them in a spotting scope because, man, you walk out on some of those pastures later yeah. and you think, oh, I'm walking right to it, and you're way off. But when you get out to the right range, turn around, shoot the truck, and go, okay, the truck's 440 meters. And then the, the spotter back there says, yeah, you need to shift. You know, it's like calling that we do it like you're doing a, a dog trial, right? So they're, they're at the truck going over, you know, <laughs> over, back. I know all and, about uh, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's actually kind of fun because, you know, I don't do a bunch of that myself, but I've seen enough of it on TV, had buddies that did it. So that's what we train our crews to do. We don't always have cell service. Sometimes we have radios. Sometimes we don't. But at the end of the day, that's what leads us to the ability to go and know that, okay, that was the collared mother. That is her baby. Now we can put a collar on that baby. And actually the collar we put on it is linked. The technology actually links to the mother's collar. 
Oh, and so, so thereafter, the, the, the baby's collar, I'm trying to think, I'm trying to keep this as, as clear and simple as possible, but the, the baby's collar is only a radio signal. It's only a, a, a very high-frequency VHF beacon. So the only way we know if it's alive or dead is by how it beeps, meaning somebody's got to be in the field with an antenna listening for it, and it's either beeping at the normal pulse rate or it's double time, which means it's in mortality, right? Motion-sensitive switch, and so now it's in mortality. But this new technology is actually communicating with mom's collar. So if we ever get a situation, I think it's, I can't remember if it's eight or ten hours, where she hasn't been back to that phone, the mother's collar will send us a message through the satellite directly to the computer at the field house and say, hey, we've got an absence. Hmm. In other words, we don't know if the baby's dead, but, but it's absent, meaning mom and baby have not been in close enough proximity to talk to each other. Something's wrong. And I'll just tell you, after two springs of this, if, if our grad students were here, they would say 99 times out of 100, that absent message, that's, that is a mortality message. Hmm. Because by the time they get out in the field to go follow up on it, they indeed find you know the remains of the neonate or the collar and some blood or whatever where you know it's been it's been killed by a predator or 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 whatever you know some mm-hmm. of them you know died you know uh was weak non thrifty and and just died um anyway so i think uh, that's probably that's a deep cool. deep dive yeah. and everything so y'all so somebody directs you to the spot and so you know that that there's two fawn antelopes laying there somewhere and y'all, you you got to find them and then how do you catch them well so that's a good point it, Usually they're separate too. So like in that scenario, we get one, we might come back on that female a second day and watch her again. And if a fawn stands up that doesn't have a collar on, that's the twin. But if the fawn stands up that has a collar on, we don't go catch it again. We just have to keep watching, right? Uh-huh. Uh, but, but as far as catching them, we walk in a, a, as a group. You know, we've usually we've got eyes on the spot or, or close enough that we know when we're getting close. And somebody, we've usually got two, two net people, right? And they're, we're talking about big old uh, salmon, like salmon nets, like you'd see on big boats in Alaska, right? And uh, so they're wide hooped on purpose, not because the fawns are huge, but because you don't want to hit them in the head with a metal net, you know? So we're very careful. All this sounds like it's wild rodeo out there, but ideally it's not because animal welfare is huge. It, we can't kill our study animals or our project's not worth anything. Um, but but basically we, we sneak around usually from behind and you can see it laying there and pronghorn are more mobile than anything else I've worked with. So, um, I've never had to worry about using nets on catching whitetail fawns or elk calves, but it does not take very long for a pronghorn fawn to want to jump up and run. And, um, we catch almost everything at less than five days old, because after that, if you don't get the jump on it, they'll probably beat you. I mean, they're pretty, they're pretty impressive. They're pretty impressive, but a two, you know, one or two days old, they often just lay there. And when the net goes over them, some of them don't even move. Some of them struggle a little bit, but they, at that point, they can't get away. So what's mama doing? It varies from just running off to, uh, running circles around us, you know, uh, what we might call kind of a a defensive behavior, right? Kind of had we been a coyote, it's suggesting that maybe she would have run at us and tried to run the coyote off. Obviously, we're a lot bigger than coyotes, so they usually just kind of stay, you know, 100, 200 yards out, uh, kind of in a nervous pattern, and we try to work that thing up as fast as we can 
obviously, because we want to get out of there. So the quicker she gets back to that phone, the quicker they're back to normal. Yeah. Um, but, but sometimes they'll run, you know, if, if there's a little terrain, they might disappear from view. But even if we can't see them, you know, our, our procedure is always the same. Get it done as fast as possible and get out of there. Wow. Hmm. Cool. That's some, you know, as these these college students, uh, culture, professor, studying all this stuff, the landowners working together, Department of Conservation. That's a great effort. It, it, really, it really is. is. And it, it's such an interesting species, and uh, you know, very um, unique. I'm I'm kind of an amateur about all this stuff. I don't have a PhD or anything, but it seems like uh, we've been focusing a lot of stuff on deer, and uh, this is exciting that. Uh, Folks are studying something something different, a different hoofed yeah. animal. Yeah, and, and I and the techniques. What's interesting from my perspective um, is a lot of the techniques are really similar. You know, just the system. You know, the the land cover changes. Um, I, you know, I I did my PhD in North Carolina. We darted all our deer. You know, I climbed a tree stand like a hunter. The difference was I was hunting at night with a night vision scope, mm. and is catching release. You know, so we had to put a bait pile out and we had to f- play the wind and um, and then you shoot through the night vision, you hit her with a dart and then you got to track her down. Well, that's because those densely forested systems, you, you couldn't catch those whitetails with a helicopter. But South Texas, they use helicopters all the time. So it's it's fascinating to me as I've moved across the country, you know, like I said, from a professional standpoint that that, you know, I darted elk in Missouri. All my colleagues in Montana, they they helicopter capture elk. And the same crew that caught our pronghorn, the helicopter crew that we contracted, the first year, they had just come from Montana. So so their their world changed overnight. They went from a bunch of snowy eastern Montana country where they were catching elk and pronghorn there, and then a couple of days later they're in no snow you know, in ag country in, uh, in Western Oklahoma, catching pronghorn for us. But their per- from their perspective, they just got to get over that, get over that pronghorn and shoot that net down, you know? So you know, it's th- crazy. Those guys, I bet they'd be interesting to talk to. Oh yeah. Cause be fun. they got to be fearless. Be fun to ride with. How about it, Richie? Not me. Yeah. The, we, uh, talked to some of those guys yeah. and yeah, they, uh, pretty fearless. One of the guys he is, he's working on his, all 50 States, uh, Getting a turkey in all fifty states is slam with the with a helicopter yeah. in yeah. there. No, 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 not, not with a helicopter. Yeah, yeah. Oh, here, the turkey no. nerds. Uh-huh. There's not. What, but uh, speaking of helicopters, forty nine. Uh, Coulter, being you know, being we were there, and you know, we were scheduled to be there for you know for a few days, and the first day, you know, it's white out, and you know, mm-hmm. it had dropped. You know, as in only, snow. Yes, as in snow, yeah. Yeah. and like the, we don't know what shirts. that is. Yeah, and like oh yeah, that's right. Owen went out there in his beachwear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Owen, that's right. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and so we were the helicopters were down, and yeah. you know, first day, and then high winds the yeah. second day, and so but so I I, I think. Can you help visualize to these guys just to walk them through the process with the helicopters and what it takes? You know, they're out there, you know, netting uh, the pronghorns and then bringing, you know, the data back to you guys to, uh, mm-hmm. uh, so just walk them through it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's funny that I said no snow because that was the, that was the first year. But, uh, but Richie's right. Here they come to do all this, this filming <laughs> and right out of the gate, we're like, well, Hurry up and wait. It's yeah. snowing in Oklahoma, and it it was just enough snow that visibility was blowing sideways. And so it's not that they couldn't fly, but it doesn't make sense to fly. 
because they're burning fuel. We're having to pay, you know, our grant is paying uh, either by the head or by the hour. So sometimes you just have to make the decision collectively. Also, we just to be, to be clear, we want those helicopter crews to be safe because we joke about it. We say fearless. Yeah, you're right. I'd say crazy. Some <laughs> yeah. of them. But but they're really, really good at what they do. And that make that goes from the pilot to the gunner to what's called the mugger. Um, so when the conditions were right, we got the helicopter up and basically uh, they they go to either searching, grid searching basically from the air, or because we've got collars out now, we can send them to recent locations of herds so they can target, you know, additional members of that herd. In other words, we don't necessarily need them to recapture unless we knew a collar was failing. So, but they can use that. The, it's like the Judas pig. Y'all have heard about the, oh, yeah. the, the yeah. that we kind of got the Judas pronghorn. So as long as we know where some of the collared animals are, we can send the helicopter and speed up their search process. Uh, and then essentially you talk about them being fast. They, they have to fly with them and the pilot has to keep everything in line. He's mm-hmm. got to stay flanked just right. He's got to see the County road coming up. He's got to, you know, watching for power lines. Um, he's got to he's got to turn them into the property that we can actually capture on. So back to our private land issue. Let's say they're running along and they they cross a boundary. Well, they're looking at maps in their helicopter that are provided by our ground crew every day. We're uploading essentially a map that shows shape files of permission, and those pilots are pretty good because it is perfectly legal for him to continue chasing that group on a property that we don't have permission to be on the ground in. But what he's doing is looking at that map going, Oh, 200 more yards. When they cross that ditch line right there, we're good. Yeah. And so when they cross the ditch line, he puts it to them, turns them the way he wants. They try to use terrain as much as they can. If there's any uphill to run them uphill, they try to get them going uphill because it slows them down a little bit. And again, that's a welfare issue because imagine if you were running as fast as you could and somebody hovering above you, in a helicopter shot a net over you it's designed to make you trip and fall so uh, we're trying to minimize the amount of injury that could happen from that uh, that that capture event uh and that's why i said these crews are amazing um because they the guy shooting the gun the one y'all were joking about uh andy orlando's the guy who you're talking about getting turkeys in 49 states um this year when he got to our project he had just celebrated his 10,000th animal captured wow wow Ten thousand individuals that he has handled or or netted from a helicopter that's wild. Uh, so so we contract that because there is no amount of learning curve that 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 i or my students could go through to make a project like this happen rather you budget and you use these professional companies and they know how to fit a collar they know how to draw blood they know how to take a tissue sample Hmm. All the things that we do, Richie alluded to that, they bring us those samples back in a, in a gallon Ziploc bag. We give them, we call it a capture kit. We give them a gallon Ziploc that's strapped to a collar. Well, they go out with, you know, they might have 15 of those in the helicopter, maybe 20. They go do their thing until it's time to refuel. And they come back to the landing zone that we've established where, the, where their fuel truck is waiting. And when they get out, they come and we hope, we always love it when they hand us an armful of gallon Ziplocs because every one of those Ziplocs is now missing a collar. But that Ziploc has blood sample, tissue sample, 
anything else that we've asked them to take on that individual. And then the grad students and the technicians, they go to work in the pickup truck. We've got uh, a small, um, they call them field centrifuge, right? So just like a centrifuge they'd use to run your blood at the doctor's office, mm-hmm. the difference is these are a little smaller. They're designed to run uh, in the truck, in the field. And while the helicopter refuels, they get a snack break. They take off and go hunt again. Meanwhile, our crew starts processing all those samples. And, you know, here in a minute, I may get a text from the, from the pilot. You know, we always say don't text and drive. Apparently, you can text and fly. I hope he just hovers for a minute, you know. And I don't know if the crop duster does the same You might have just yeah. gotten him in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, yeah. but he, often we're communicating because he might say, well, let's move to the next landing zone. Because, again, he's looking at his fuel consumption. He's looking at where we're hunting. We call it hunting that day. And then when we're done spinning blood, we rally up our whole convoy and we move to the next LZ. And here in another two hours, you hear the helicopter coming, rinse and repeat. And mm-hmm. so we do that every day for as many days as it takes. Uh, so far for us, that's about, we budget probably four days. Um, but with situations like what Richie experienced where day one became day zero because we basically didn't get to fly. And so that changes, that changes our timeline a little bit. But in the end, we got uh, this past year was rougher weather-wise, but we got what we needed out of the capture event. And, uh, and then they <laughs> took a break, and some of them loaded up in the truck. The pilot closed the doors, and he flew back to Colorado. You know? And the next day, they were going to be, I believe this year, uh, they were going to be catching wolves somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, that was their next job. So those, those crews y'all were talking about, it, it, they're fearless, absolutely. And they go job to job to job until the season is done. What was the guy's name that had caught had ten thousand? Andy, Andy Orlando. Let's hit the horns for Andy one time. That, <laughs> yeah, that is I'll say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll say his name when they hear like it. I have to tell him that we're talking about him. But, uh, but yeah, yeah. They're uh, like I said, we've been really, really pleased with them. Um, there's, there's many, there's several companies, but a lot of these different states. Um, it's almost like we're, I don't want to say competing, not in a bad way, but when we're ready to schedule, you know, we're trying to, we're trying to get them on the calendar because they're going to be working somewhere. Uh, we just, we try to lock in our stuff as soon as we know when we want to do those captures so that we can get them on the calendar because um, they could get a whiteout in Montana, decide to leave that job early, jump down to us, but then they got to get us done as quick as they can so they can get back to the Montana job. You know, because they're they're juggling all kinds of winter weather conditions in places a lot a lot rougher than uh, than the Oklahoma Panhandle. Yeah, no. mm-hmm. boy, that sounds like quite a job. Yeah. So, Lane, you got a question? Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit off of the uh, what we're talking about with the the research going on, but you know, they're called pronghorns, but don't they shed their their antlers every year? So does it have an antler? I mean, or is it a horn? I don't think they shed. All right. they, I think they so, do. I think they he's going to answer. What? Oh, yeah. Why don't you Wait, let what, him? Listen. I didn't know you were a biologist. Let the expert oh, no, no, no. answer. I thought you were anyways. Hey, he, he did good, though. Yeah. He did good. Yeah. I heard sheath. All yeah. right, so I, I love this, and I'll tell you what what I call them, and we go over this in, like, classes, you know, for undergrads. That is what is fascinating about their – so we'll start with headgear, right? Everybody yeah. knows they got something on their head. What do we call it? I would say if you were just going to – if you never used a word other than antler or horn – I'd pick horn for pronghorn, okay? Hmm. But I actually think it's completely appropriate, and this is a unique species, as we've already talked about. I call them pronghorns. The actual structure, 
pronghorns. And the reason is they actually have characteristics of both. So everything y'all were just kind of arguing about, most horns, for example, don't branch. But 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 pronghorns, yeah, as you know, they, have the prongs. So that branching is more antler-like than it is horn-like. Okay? But that sheath, the black part that we're all looking at, you know, in the fall when we're after, you know, the big buck, that is a keratinized sheath. That is keratin, which is the 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 hair-like fibers that are that are in horns, not the not the bone that is back mm-hmm. there on that deer behind y'all on the wall, which is a, a characteristic of antlers. And then to make it even worse, they do shed the sheath annually. Well, horns are never shed, but that whitetail back there shed every year of his life, right? So right. basically, we just went through all the lists where you're trying to define one or the other and pronghorn again as if to prove how unique they are their headgear has characteristics that make them kind of somewhere in the middle Hmm. so i actually often encourage students i said well hey they're unique already let's call their headgear pronghorns Pronghorns, that makes sense but i definitely i definitely have a hard time trying to call them antlers because antlers are so specifically you know they look you know y'all know what it is you look at a mule deer a whitetail an elk it's bone it looks like bone. They all look that way. It's real hard to make that argument for pronghorn. So when it when it sheds that keratin layer, that the, what's left under there is that bone. Oh, yes. Thank you. I I meant that was the last part. That is a bone. There's a bony core underneath, uh, which again kind of weird because that means there's bone on its head, yeah. but the bone itself is not being shed, which is what happened to that white tail behind you right there. So just a very unique animal. And does that bone get larger every year? With age or nutrition? Well, that's, that's a that's a good question. I, it's a, like a baculum uh, growing out of head. <laughs> <laughs> he can't get honestly, that out yeah. out of his honestly, mind. Honestly, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh, you know, I imagine there's inter-individual variation for sure. Uh, I don't know that there's a lot of growth like once it's established. Yeah. Uh, but there could be variation in how much, uh, how large it was when it was established. Um, but that's why a lot of times when it comes to pronghorn, that sheath, you know, y'all have heard this, hunters talk about it all the time, like, oh, I want to hunt, I don't want to hunt in a drought year, or I want to hunt when I know range conditions were good, because that that growth that, uh, of the of the part we're looking for, right, the, yeah. the black sheath that we see in the fall, um, can be really variable. It's not it's not quite as correlated to age the way we think about about whitetails white and, and mule deer and elk, where we know that if we can get them into older age categories, yes, there's still variation in their headgear based on nutritional plane mm-hmm. and genetics, but we know they, they tend to get bigger with age up until a point. And the thing about pronghorn is you, you, could, you could shoot a giant three-year-old just as easily as you could shoot a giant six-year-old. Um, it's just not, it's just, again, it's just very so, unique and, and very different from what we think about with the, the antlered species, you know, deer and elk. But I was listening to the rain comment though. It's got to be tied to nutrition in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the, that's the thought. And that's why you hear hunters talking about like, if you're trying to wait 10, 12 years to pull a special tag somewhere, uh, they're, they're trying to figure out and time that with a year where they feel like the, the headgear growth is going to be sure. uh, as big as possible rather than hunting a unit that you've been waiting on for a decade and it's been in a three-year drought. Yeah. yeah. You know, the, yeah. 
some of the, and animal. some states are known for having a lot better headgear than others. I, I think like New Mexico is known for some bigger antelope, if, if I'm not mistaken. And I think Wyoming, they're they're not as typically as big. Thank you, Mister Know It All. Yeah, I never knew he's such an antelope aficionado. Well, you know, I have killed one. Oh, you have? I've seen the pictures. Yeah, I have killed one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, and and I and you're right. I you know honestly, as a hunter, t- stepping outside the research for a minute, um, you know, I've I've I would agree, Bobby. I mean, I've heard the same thing. You know, some of the most highly sought after units being in this state instead of that state. Um, I'm sure there are some components there related to pressure and total harvest and whatnot, uh, as well as range conditions. Um, but by and large, um, it's in the eye of the beholder. Sure. Yeah, yeah, no, no doubt there. And, and one thing that I remember about them is they're not very they're not very big. When you walk up on one laying there, it, they're you know there's it's not like a great big old whitetail. Yeah, laying there. So what are they? A, a big buck is what eighty ninety pounds? Uh, over a hundred. Um, maybe up to maybe maybe one thirty. Okay, so pounds. that's that's yeah. about as big as a li- live weight of a pronghorn buck and a, yeah in the thin skin I what he's yeah i think what he's thinking is like if you imagine i mean i remember being with uh, my buddy marcus lashley in alabama one time and we killed a doe that weighed like i don't know if it, i don't remember if it's 128 or 132 pounds that's a good one right there now she's huge mm, makes yeah, me hungry black black belt of alabama mm-hmm. you know that's, that's a big old girl um so that that's the weird overlap there. What you're not what you're not expecting is like you walk up on a big. I keep pointing at y'all's mounted whitetail. You walk up on that man. Oh man, it weighs 250 pounds. Yeah, there's not a they're not 250 pound prong one. Um, so you know does I, I I wish I had a live weight. I hunted in Montana last year and killed a, a buck and a doe, and um, we've never had a, the ability where we hunt to weigh one, but. You know, when I walk up on them, I, I'm thinking more like an eastern whitetail hunter. You know, I'm, I'm definitely not thinking anything near a, a cow elk. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, they're they're quite small. They're kind of compact. They can be. If you think about watching them run, um, that they can look kind of chunky through the chest in a way, through the chest and the hindquarters. But they're not real. They're not real tall. I think that's what that's what gets me when I walk up on one is if they were standing beside you. They just seem really diminutive. Mm-hmm. Uh, all their body weight is in that muscle mass that allows them to run, run really fast. Mm-hmm. So the the pronghorns only really inhabit that small portion uh, in the Panhandle, correct? Um, in com- Oklahoma, that's correct. So compared to other states that you know have a have pronghorn covering a larger area. Uh, what kind of numbers do hunters take every year around there? Do you do you know that? I know that's not really um, in your wheelhouse. Yeah, but. that's a great question, and I hate to guess at it exactly. I, I know I've I've looked through numbers here and there. F- from the standpoint of the quick and dirty surveys that ODWC does, I'm talking about Eric, not not the hunting for a second, but just the the, the aerial overflights that they do. Um, we're probably only talking about. 800 to 1500 pronghorn in and around the Oklahoma panhandle moving right. back. I'm just talking kind of total population size. Um, and that's the number that they think has declined a bit over the last decade. Um, part of why they want to know that, as you, as you can imagine where, where I'm going next, is when you are issuing tags 
at some point, you may have to decide whether or not you need to be issuing as many doe tags. Sure. Because Oklahoma does have opportunity for, for both buck and doe. It's not come one, come all. There's no way they could support that. So somebody like me, who I'm not a landowner out there, so I've got no, I've got no angle on landowner tags. I've got no angle on damage tags, that kind of thing. I'm having to put in as a resident of Oklahoma for a drawing to try to draw a tag. And even once I did, I better go get friendly with a, with a rancher that'll let me own because there's not a whole bunch of public out there. Uh, actually, matter of fact, you may not even be able to use the tag on public. I'd have to check. Um, so, so I don't know, and I hate to hazard a guess at the, at what the harvest has been in recent years. I can get that if y'all, if y'all want to include it later. Um, but I do know that their anecdotal evidence is that there's a mix of reports from on the ground. They get, they get maybe hunters saying, well, I'm not seeing as many as I used to. Some of the ranchers say that. Then you got some ranchers, particularly some, some folks, uh, farmers doing ag. Well, they're mad because there's 40 head on their wheat field, you know, so they think we need to shoot more of them. So mm -hmm. the, as always, there's a little bit of a push pull there and the agency's trying to strike that balance, but they're also trying to make sure that the, the herd is sustainable. At, sure. at whatever level, you know, because we could target problem areas with nuisance tags, but we don't want to over harvest other areas because we don't have our finger on the pulse. And that's, that's again, back to the very beginning of this. That's why this project is a value because it gives them more data from a, a population standpoint to work with, to figure out whether or not areas can support the same or more or less doe harvest than other areas. Gotcha. So it's, it, yeah, that sounds like it's pretty limited. If, you know, you can't just go buy a tag. You got to, you got to oh, put no, in for draw no, and yeah, very, I very limited. The only, the only way you can do that, I think, was, is with archery. Again, I've, I've only been here a few years and certainly I have not prioritized, you know, trying to go out to the panhandle for pronghorn. But I think the only way you could hunt pronghorn every year in Oklahoma right now, barring a land ownership opportunity is you'd have to be archery hunting. I think that is the the only real come one, come all opportunity. If I ever draw that pronghorn tag I'm talking about, that's it. That's a lifetime draw. Okay. Mm. You either, either shoot one or not, but you're done in Oklahoma. Okay. Again, unless you're wow. landowners out there that have access to other other options related to land ownership and, and nuisance complaints and whatnot. Um, so. Good deal. Pretty interesting. Yeah. yeah. Mac, uh, you, you keep looking at me like you got a question. I do. With with them being plains prairie animals, I'm just curious if their eyesight or their nose is better. Mm. I'd go with eyesight for sure. They, um, I, you know, again, think about this from a hunting perspective. I'm far more worried if a pronghorn can see me than what direction the wind's blowing. Put it that way. And none of us would do that if we were thinking about hunting whitetails and central mississippi right um you'd be playing the wind first and foremost banking on the fact that as long as it got close enough to your archery setup the eyes aren't going to matter at that point far at that point you're far more worried that if you draw your bow and make a sound they're going to hear you up in the tree mm -hmm. right so so i would flip that for pronghorn their eyesight has been compared to eight power binoculars <laughs> so uh it if you think about where they evolved, right, where, where, where they've been historically, the types of predators that they have to avoid, eyesight is number one. Uh, 
scent and hearing matter, but at a much closer range. And I can only think of a handful of times where I know I've been winded by a pronghorn and actually heard them uh, blow or snort the way we think about whitetails. But I bet I bet all y'all been snorted at quite a few times by whitetails. You know, that's happening all the time. Oh, yeah. Um, but with pronghorn, it just seems like they, they see and they, they start running. I wanted, I've got one more question. I wanted to fact check Bobby on this. He said they smell like oh. corn chips. What, do, you, do you think that they have that smell? <laughs> I never knew. Did Such an antelope aficionado. I don't okay. think I saw it. <laughs> Bobby just great. stuck his nose down there and well, smelled it. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to swoop in here and save, and save Bobby again. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. If you'd asked me that question years and years ago, I don't know if I would have said, corn chips because i'd have been trying to think what to compare it to but now that i've heard lots of people say that they do have a really unique smell i smell like fritos and and i can and i can (laughs) i can see how the frito corn chip comparison was made so again you might decide that you'd compare it to something a little bit different but uh but they do have a really interesting interesting smell and their meat yeah. is that the, the the one that i was able to kill many years ago we we cooked him and it was that it was delicious meat it's fantastic i and i hope you're listening i know we'll get crucified because somebody will say no oh, they taste horrible that's the thing with pronghorn you meet both ends of that pendulum it's either they think they're the worst thing in the world or i'll, I'll say it right now at risk of getting stoned later i would probably if i was doing my own steak at the house like maybe say doing something in a cast iron real quick, small mm. steak cut. Mm-hmm. I would pick a pronghorn over an elk. Ooh, wow, Whoa, that's bold. Wow, that's pretty yeah. serious. Yeah. Bold move. There. I thought he was going to say whitetail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, that's easy. Yeah. No, and I, and, but I did. I did Whew. that to be provocative on purpose because elk, you know elk meat has that reputation, right? Of just being it's the closest thing you know to kind of like beef steak that we have. But I think, in my experience, I think the reason I pick it is. I'm often dealing with smaller cuts of meat on pronghorn, and it's even more tender. So it's every bit as flavorful in my view, but even more tender than, you know, a four- or five-year-old rutted-up bull. So um, so I love it. My wife loves it. I, I encourage anybody who doesn't believe it, like, just be sure to handle the meat properly. What oh, I hate okay. seeing in eastern Montana, you know, I lived in Missoula for four years. That's on the west end of the state, but we did most of our pronghorn hunting in southeast. Montana, lots of public land out there, uh, fairly easy to draw even for non-residents. And, and you know, we'd be coming down the highway, and here comes a pickup truck on the interstate with just legs sticking up, look like a bunch of octopus back there, There'd four or five pronghorn piled up, all the legs sticking up. Well, October in Montana, eastern Montana, when it's sunny, mm-hmm. even if you don't feel hot like we all do right now in the southeast, it's still 75, 80 degrees. Yeah. And keeping that hide on, I think, is the driver of people who do not like the gamey taste of pronghorn. Hmm. I have had only one in my friend group that ever approached that gamey taste that people hate. And I realize I'm a scientist, and so it's a small sample size. But that is the only one I'm ever aware of that because of where we were, we had we were hunting on a ranch by permission. And because of where we were and where he wanted us to go process it, that that one that one had the hide on for at least sixty minutes, maybe ninety, before we took care of it. So nowhere near a half a day drive across the state, and that is the only one 
that ever tasted funny to me. Every other one, we shot it, we went up, we took our appropriate photos, not like we just raced up, you know, we had time. But then we, we get the hide off, we use the gutless method, get them in game bags, get the meat cool, and it is fantastic. So that's my, sorry to get on a, a rant there, guys, but I really think a lot about pronghorn meat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's I good like to that. know. I like good that, information. That gutless yeah. method, too. I like that. that oh, yeah. yeah. Works good. So well, let me it. ask you this. So the, the times that I've been out west, it seems like pronghorn lend themselves to being so visible from the roads. Is there a poaching problem out there that, that 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 occurs with these animals that may not occur with some of the others? Maybe mule deer, I suppose. But boy, they just seem yeah. so visible. That's a good question, and I would say so. Across the range, I'm sure there's some variable answers. There's probably people in Wyoming and Montana that would would have strong opinions by their experience there. I will say, so far in the Oklahoma project, we. We've been surprised. We were told by many folks that a lot of the actual violations associated with that type of egregious behavior, you know, out of season, you know, shooting something from a road, um, we, we were told was far more common eastward in Oklahoma than in the panhandle. And partly due to maybe the visibility of the fact that it's a lot harder to get away with it when your truck can be seen a mile and a half across a wheat field, you know, as, as opposed to eastern Oklahoma. So, um, without casting stones on where people come from, we've had, I think, two that I can think of that we know were poached. One was a buck, and unfortunately, one was a doe. And the collared doe that was killed, if I'm remembering the story right, was shot alongside two other does and left to lay. Mm. So the game warden's sense of that was it was somebody who just didn't like pronghorn. Bobby, to your point, they're available, they're visible pull over on the side of a county road with nobody around, bang, 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 there's th- there's three does. So um, it makes them easy to hunt in a way because we can we can encounter pronghorn at a greater frequency than we can something like an elk. Um, but unfortunately, that means the opportunity to, to shoot them from the road or poach them uh, might go up as well. Mm. Yeah, that's tough to think about. Goodness gracious. Have, do you have any stories of, of guys uh, shooting something with a collar and not realize you're sticking the collar in their truck and not reporting it. And you, you I, I've always heard that this happened and you guys were able <laughs> yeah. to track it down and give them a chance to at least. Well, um, so one, it, it's a story and it's a, it, it almost, it's going to be funny because I suspected where it was going and then, and then, and then we got the collar back before it happened. But the guy actually called, he called here at my office, uh, gave me the, the whole report, I had everything. And he was on his way to bear hunt in Colorado. So he had, you know, legally hunted Oklahoma with his tag here, filled the tag, and actually lived in central Oklahoma. And so he didn't he didn't need to come all the way back to central Oklahoma. He needed to go use his his fall bear tag in Colorado. And so he he said, Well, would it hurt y'all too much if I waited and gave you the collar when I got back? And I said, Well, no, that that won't be a problem. He goes, Well, is there anything I need to do to it to turn it off? I said, well, no, there's, you know, I was keeping it simple just to tell y'all. I mean, the only way we can shut it down would be with like placing a magnet in the right spot, right? And so I told him, no, unfortunately not, but it's no big deal. You're talking about burning up another week of data points. I said, but 
I am going to know everywhere you park to go bear hunting. <laughs> and, he was, and he was like, now, hang on, hang on, hang on. I said, look, I'm not going to come steal your Colorado bear hunting spot. I got no interest in it myself. But the, the implication was, yes, we could have tracked him all the way on his trip, you know, every two or three hours, dropping a pin everywhere he drove, everywhere he parked for the whole thing. Uh, and as it would happen, he hung up with me, and five minutes later, he pulled over in a gas station out there in Oklahoma, uh, or western Oklahoma, where he was at, and the state big game biologist and one of the game wardens were standing at the gas station, and he went over and introduced himself and handed off our collar, and then and then he went on to Colorado, and, the, and then the big game biologist called me and said, hey, I just had a hunter report one. I got the collar for you, and I was like, that's weird. I just had a hunter report one. And after five minutes of figuring out, oh, it's the same guy. And so I joked that he didn't want me to know where he was hunting in, uh, in Colorado. So he went ahead and turned that collar in. <laughs> yeah, I would. I need to get one of those. I'd like to put one of those on Lanny's truck at, at some point during turkey season. No. Yeah, well, well, they have these things called AirPods. Yeah. That's yeah. a good idea. Yeah. So well, let me know if we ever have a spare, Bobby, I could chip you one and you could just – put it in his stuff when you're not looking yeah that's that he that can't keep up with me so uh, <laughs> have we asked all the right questions here is there anything left on un, 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 richie uh from from you is there anything we else we need to ask well one thing i was going to bring up you know earlier uh Golden, you talked about home range but uh what about habitat what is uh the from the research data you guys have have gotten and what what, is, what does it show about their habitat and what what they need Yeah, what is ideal yeah yeah, well, that's a great question. So, and I'm, I'm glad you asked it because so the short answer is we haven't analyzed any of that yet. So I don't have real hardcore answers for what seems to be ideal in Oklahoma. Um, but what, the reason we're collecting it is we have an interesting gradient within our study area for those that are familiar. Uh, you know, we've been saying Panhandle, but we're working in the western half of the Panhandle. So if anybody pulls up a map and you see where Guyman, Oklahoma is. That's right in the center of Texas County. From Guyman to New Mexico, that's where we're focused. And once you start getting east of Guyman toward Beaver County, there's still a few pronghorn, but they're really starting to fall out, like we talked about earlier. So what's interesting about that is the the Texas County, western Texas County is far more agriculture based than the stuff we see closer and closer to New Mexico. So one of the things that we're interested in, we got collars from right there in Guyman all the way west, which means we have this kind of gradient of available habitats to pronghorn. Everything from, you know, really heavy ag-dominated, just straight-up tabletop flatland all the way toward this kind of getting into Mesa country, much more native uh, rangeland, uh, cattle grazing, but not so much center pivots and ag. Uh, so we're very interested in looking at whether or not those two situations predispose females, for example, to have higher or lower fawn survival or uh, to have uh, nutritional metrics in their in their feces. So I'm going to switch. I'm answering Richie's question, I promise. But we also collect fecal material on these animals, not only not only the adults when we catch them at the helicopter, but we're doing observations in the field collecting uh, feces because we can actually use the fecal material 
to assess nutritional quality. It's a, it's a proxy. It's an index. But we can assess the nutritional quality of the diet via nitrogen and phosphorus measured from the fecal material. We can also send that fecal material to a lab and use something called DNA metabarcoding to identify the plant species that are present in the fecal material. So if your gears are turning, you're thinking, okay, you're literally starting to build a picture of not only the GPS locations that show where this individual lived, but now potentially being able to connect that to the actual diet as proxied through the fecal material and what kind of nutritional plane they were on. So that's the long answer to say we don't know yet, but that is a big component of how we're blending the, the movement data with the underlying landscape to get at how that might affect the fitness of the population, you know, higher productivity, lower productivity. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's yeah. mm-hmm. well, high tech. Too. You're finding oh, out yeah. what they eat. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I should have just said we're finding out what they eat. That would have been easier. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, gosh, guys, this has been really interesting. Yeah, very interesting. I, you know, the, the times that I've been out west, when I see an antelope, it, it's, there's just something about them. They're just so they're, remarkable. They're just different. Yeah. Yeah, they are. Beautiful animals. Mm-hmm. So that, that, I, I was the same way. Same way. Coulter, do you, have you gotten to, to hunt them much? Yeah, well, when I moved to Montana um, and lived in Missoula, you know, I worked at the University of Montana before I came here to OSU. And um, though I didn't do any research, my buddies like to joke, I had to move away from Montana to actually get to work on pronghorn. Uh, I did, as a resident there, uh, start to pull my first tags. So I've I've, I think I've killed like five bucks and four does, something like that, uh, over my uh, the three or four resident seasons that I had. And I have now traveled back to Montana one time as a non-resident with my brother from Georgia. Uh, it was his first ever pronghorn hunt last fall. And we both pulled uh, a buck tag and a doe tag uh, and hunted with my buddies uh, that still live in Montana uh, last fall. So, And we actually did really well. We if you were looking for stories, when you've made a little bit of relationships, you got some private land access. We often hunt all on public, and I and I love that. I got n- no problem with it. But we happened to befriend a rancher two years ago, and they're just fantastic, and they love us coming. We we actually one of my buddies pulls his, his camper all the way from Missoula. We we hook the camper up in their yard, turn it into a big deal. We had 19 tags in camp because most people had two tags, and we killed 19 pronghorn in two and a half days. <laughs> That's a lot of work good. and a lot of fun. That's a good bit of meat. We, yeah, man. It, we, we joked that it was a local extinction event, but it really <laughs> wasn't because we, we some of those were on public. Most of them were on private. The only way we were able to do that, I don't want to sound braggy because it's not just about killing stuff, but those of us that were traveling out of state, you know, we're trying to maximize our opportunity Sure, because we can't stay in Montana for 10 days. You know, my brother's got to get back to work. He's got, he's got kids and a wife in Georgia. Um, but, but having that infrastructure, having those connections, and, and having enough people, we broke off into different teams. You know, we'd come back together and see each other for the first time at lunch. And, you know, Dan's group had killed two does and a buck that morning. They're already on ice. Meanwhile, we're rolling up, and my brother's just killed his first one. Another buddy with me was a first-timer. You know, so over the span of two and a half days, we, you know, we just had a great time. And, um, and Bobby, to your point, I mean, when I was eight years old, my – my dream was to was to be able to hunt pronghorn. I don't know why I was so drawn to him as a kid. And then as I got into this field, even prior to me ever hunting them, I was already 
daydreaming back in my North Carolina days working on whitetails. Man, wouldn't it be cool to do pronghorn research? And I had no idea that it would more or less fall in my lap in the first three months that I lived in Oklahoma. Wow. Well, that's so great. Cool story, yeah, bro. No doubt about it. Yeah, that is good. Yeah. Well, Coulter, we've, we have really enjoyed talking mm-hmm. to you. Absolutely. Dr. Coulter Chitwood from Oklahoma State University. He's got a lot of research going on. I know that we're going to ask you to do some other things with us. I really yeah. uh, want to hear about your Alaska wolf research. Okay. It's yeah, happy to point, do it. So. I like uh, talking to y'all, too. It's fun. Good. Well, uh, look, at this point, we always kind of turn it over. Dudley likes to – we've got a thing called rapid fire. We'll ask you – he will ask you a bunch of questions real fast and we just we get to know you a little bit better yeah it's brought to you by our friends at springfield armory they make uh, a heck of a pistol they make some great pistols so uh look i I don't know what's about to happen Coulter, but i'm gonna turn it over to dudley (laughs) all right Coulter. um i don't know if you've ever heard us do this before or not but uh it's fun so it's like a psych- it's like a psychology exam. It it's is. It is. This oh, is a test. I'm now. This is a test. <laughs> um, so just be prepared to just be prepared to answer the questions as quickly as you can. If you want to, you can say both or neither. But uh, okay. Anyway, okay. Uh, we're going to try to get to know you a, be- a little better here. Are okay. you Are you ready? Uh, let's go. All right. All right, homegrown tomatoes, just salt and pepper or salt and pepper and mayo? Salt and pepper. Fresh peaches or fresh watermelon? Peaches every day, twice Mm -hmm. on Sunday. (laughs) Lemonade or limeade? Lemonade. Would you rather eat homegrown tomatoes or refrigerator pickles? I'm going to go pickles. Watermelon or watermelon with salt? Oh, I'd dabble in both. I'd, I'd usually watermelon without salt, but I'd say both. They're All right. Fly fish, Pennsylvania or North Georgia? Oh, I'm going to go North Georgia because where I'm from. South, All South right. Pennsylvania. Montana or Wyoming? Montana. Fish early in the morning or late in the afternoon? Mm, late evening. All late right. Evening. Fly fish summer or fall? Summer for me. Tie your own flies or pick them up at the local tackle shop? Both. Turkey hunt. Ooh. East of Mississippi or west of Mississippi? East of Mississippi. All right. Ow. Turkey hunting. Do you rake away the leaves before sitting down or do you just plop on down? I plop down so I can use them to rake. There we go. Ooh. Ooh. Right. Yeah. <laughs> nice. And, and last but not least, Kane Yelper. Trumpet or wang bone? <laughs> I'll go trumpet. All, All right. right. I'm scared to say wang bone. <laughs> <laughs> good answer. Hey, good job. Yeah. That was good. Yeah, those um, are good, Dudley. Good. That, wow. that was fun. I'm kind of in a summer food mood. Yeah, I can you, tell. Tomatoes. I yeah. I've been wearing out the refrigerator pickles myself. <laughs> so. I was ready if you like. You started into blackberries. I was like. Cobbler, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Blackberries or dewberries? Yeah. Yeah, All right. the above. Well, Coulter, uh, we appreciate having you. I'm yeah, going to send do. you some uh, – uh, we've got a new – we revised an old brand around here called Mossy Oak Companions. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of us are wearing some shirts. I'm going I'm to get a couple of them out in UPS to you in the next couple of days. So. Awesome. Uh, that sounds yeah. great. 
Is there anybody you need to say hello to, or, or any, any anybody anybody you need to give, help, give a thanks to for helping with this project? Probably need to make sure we call out. Oh well, yeah. I, well, again, just acknowledging that uh, you know ODWC is the is the primary funder, uh, and it's a five year project. Um, it's it's quite an investment on their part, but obviously a valuable one. Private landowners for access, of course. Um, and the relationships that we're building with those bordering states is also important because we never know when we may need to follow up on Oklahoma pronghorn that end up in Kansas mm-hmm. or or uh, Texas or what have you. And uh, and finally, our other partners. You know, we're doing this work. It's it's run it's run through OSU. We're the point institution on it, uh, but it does involve uh, uh, students and faculty from East Central University and down at Cesar Clayburg in Texas. I tell you, he's he's, a he's got team. a website too. And is it called the mm-hmm. Chip, Chipwood Lab? Yeah, if you, I think if you Google Chipwood Lab, it pops up. It's a WordPress website. I think, yeah, I forget how they do it, but you know, Coulter Chipwood WordPress, I'd probably find it too. Um, but yeah, that's that's where I put my lab updates and try to keep my my you know grad student and projects updated periodically. Hey, um, one thing, Coulter, I was going to ask you, and but this is kind of the flow of things. Just one question here. Um, mm-hmm. If you could just talk about the data you're getting from the callers on the phones, you know what what is that showing you? Yeah, okay. So the phone callers are primarily giving us survival information for the phone age class. So in other words, as long as the phone's alive and the the caller's beeping normally, um, we know the the phone is alive when we get that signal that either the mom hasn't been nearby or we're out there tracking that collar and the, the VHF tells us that the, the collar has been still for eight hours or whatever, we know that's abnormal. We go in and investigate the mortality calls. So we're not getting uh, spatial data. We're not getting any GPS points on the collar that goes on the phone. And that's mainly because you're trying to keep that collar as small and as lightweight as possible uh, in order to fit on the baby. And the way the collar works is it actually expands as the as the phone grows. Oh, yeah. So it's it's sewed with pleats in it, and and with a special uh, excuse me a special special stitch that degrades when exposed to UV and and uh, and water. So over time, it's basically getting weaker and weaker. So as the as the young pronghorn's neck is growing, it's putting pressure on that collar to pop those pleats. And it'll actually expand out. Potentially, that battery will run for a year. Hmm. So if if the collar stays around its neck and doesn't just completely rip off, it's possible that a fawn that we're really finished tracking in August, we might actually be able to hear it next May or June hmm. until finally that battery goes dead, or like I said, eventually that collar, eventually that collar just rips apart. So it it ends up it ends up looking like this. So All this right. is one that came off of a white-tailed deer, but see how faded, mm-hmm. see how faded that is. This yeah. is how it started. Oh yeah, look at there. See those pleats. So it's the same again. That's for whitetails. So it's a little bit different shape, a little different size, but it's the exact same technology. And so in our case, that's all. All that fawn stuff is designed to understand fawn survival and causes a fawn mortality. Hmm. So when Mama gives birth and there's two fawns laying there, does she? Does she move them from that birthing spot? Pretty quickly, and, yes. And, and how far? And, and and so they're so young. How can they? How that? That's amazing that they can make that little small journey. 
Yeah, it's um, it's really true of of all all the species that y'all would hunt: mule deer, whitetails, elk. They they all move pretty quickly. Uh, there's a period of time right after she has them where she licks them clean, so they're all kind of got the amniotic fluid on them. So they lick it clean. She, they often eat the afterbirth. Um, which is nutrient rich, but it's also thought that that's probably reducing some of the potential odor that could attract a predator while she's licking them clean. Um, but even with something like a whitetail that is maybe a bit less mobile than a pronghorn, pretty quickly they can move them from the birth site and almost without fail, they do separate the twins. So one, one might go one way some distance and one might go the other. Um, those distances vary. Um, there's no real set distance that it could be. But that's why I mentioned earlier when you're talking about whether or not the pronghorn can get away, they're pretty mobile pretty quick. So, um, you know, the earlier we find them, the better. But a, a brand new, a five-hour-old neonate, even if it tries to run from me, it's not going to get away. It's not that mobile at five or ten hours of age. But at five days, whew, they they can be pretty impressive. Hmm. So we, we try to catch them really young. I mean, data-wise, we need them really young. Otherwise, there's bias in the data set. But also, we can't catch them when they're real old because, I mean, I used to be fast, but I ain't fast anymore. <laughs> and what's neonate? I've heard you say that, sir. I'm assuming it's a, a young Yeah, fawn. that's my bad. Yeah, we, that's exactly it. We, we tend to refer to neonate as these very young age individuals that are still able to be captured versus okay. like, you know, if you're sitting in a deer stand – this October and you see a doe and a fawn walk by you ain't finna catch by then, <laughs> well, right. It's not even got spots, you know, in right. most cases. Um, and so, uh, functionally the, the two terms could be interchangeable, but a lot of times when we say neonate, we mean those really young, very catchable, um, fawns. Gotcha. So cool. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah, yeah, it's it's an interesting look. Mm-hmm. So, I got it right here. Yeah. Right. So, Coulter, look, we've enjoyed having you. Sure, appreciate yeah. you being on. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Well, guys, you know, we always uh, we talk about what did we learn. Yeah. Uh, there's, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot to learn about antelope. Well, you already know. know everything about antelope, apparently. But, well, so I didn't know that they aren't an antelope. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> I I gotta shoot one because one I want to smell it. Yeah, it and, smells and, like Fritos. Fritos and two, and, I want to eat it. Yeah. So I don't remember them smelling like Fritos, but I remember them smelling very sagey. So you said corn chips? No, I didn't. I think Mike just made that he up. Maybe Googled it in his. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I, I had said that. Nah, super unique animal. I mean, we talk about diversity all the time. The way our natural resources can create something like that is pretty cool. It's akin to a giraffe. That's pretty wild. Yeah, that, that kind of... Uh, and they have horns and antlers. They have pronghorns, so it's... it's uh, they look like, you know, back when the flood ended, they didn't get off on the ark where they were supposed to. <laughs> Something <laughs> like that. Yeah, that's a good way of putting yeah, it. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. Well, I, th- look, these guys like Coulter are just so fascinating to to learn what yeah the research doing. no doubt about it and the, look you you hit on this a little bit the the work they're doing across state lines with the agencies with private landowners all in the name of the resources pretty cool yeah that's impressive it is and uh i think it's it for him to to get the the, the private landowners to cooperate that's yeah. a big deal but it doesn't surprise me that the states cooperate it, yeah. it seems like they're that that doesn't surprise me at all. That's an important resource. Yeah, it is. It is. I do think, Lane. One of the things that I learned is that if I could get one of these GPS 
uh, th- I could put it on the LS tractor. You might know where it is. You might know where it is. That would help me, I think. So, I that's, that's a good. That's a good point. Yeah, I thought about that while he was explaining, and I said, "I need, or maybe I need an air." You could, yeah, air, you, air yeah. Pod. Find out where I am. You could put What's one under my truck. What's the deal with AirPod? Yeah, what is what is, what is that? that? An AirPod. Well, I've got a friend that's uh, in in Europe right now, and her luggage has not made it, but she put an AirPod in her luggage, and she's tracked it all over the place, and has called and said it's in such and such airport. Such as you know. So is it what? Right. I thought he was talking about the headphones. I don't know what he is. Is that what they're called? I don't think they're called a pod. Okay, whatever. <laughs> but it's some kind of Apple thing. Oh, okay. A towel. Uh, right. He apparently doesn't know exactly what he's talking about either. But I hear you. Yeah. But you're not going to track me in the spring. What about Life 360? We could like put that on your phone. You're not putting anything on my phone. Yet. <laughs> yeah, I don't track you. <laughs> Only thing on my phone is Onyx. Yeah. So, yeah. hey, and point well taken to all those public land out there. You need to be sure that uh, everybody knows not to stomp around on that without private landowner permission. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I'm sure Onyx has got that figured out so that people don't send David McElwain a note. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of somebody, I'd want to put one of those things. I'd yeah. put that on his truck and figure out where he's hunting. Yeah, well, this has been interesting. I, the 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 pronghorn uh, is a fascinating animal. Yeah, Coulter Chitwood, o- Oklahoma State University. Richie had a great time out there. This yeah, was, yeah, it's been a fun project. It's been really cool. Uh, just you know, we're still in the middle of you know uh, finding out the research, and it's, yeah. it's fun to be you know and part uh, of that. part of his, the results and to see what they uh, come up with, and then but also the other projects that. Uh, culture's got yeah. going on and you know potentially if uh, we're lucky enough to tag along on those yeah. as well yeah he's a busy young guy did, mm-hmm. did you fly in the helicopter region uh no i let i let owen fly oh, it. Now, so, so, so one of the questions i was going to ask culture it was a little different than the ones we've research we've done in the past where the uh you know they let us jump right in the helicopter with them and stuff yeah but so they they weren't they, these weren't as big either oh so, the helicopters yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so uh, well, uh it should have been you instead of Owen, man. Well, yeah, I let Owen, you know, he, he said he'd never done it. And I've done it. I've been in, I've flown a helicopter a few times with, right. with so a camera. So Owen shows up out there with, with, in a blizzard yeah, with flip flops on. With flip flops and, and shorts. I'll be, I'll be honest. I've, I've filmed a lot of different places and I've been cold. I have. I've been cold, but I was cold out there. And just, the, you know, out there in Oklahoma, that wind, it Ain't was nothing to biting. Stop it. Yeah. yeah there was nothing to Eating stop you it. up. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah. I tell you, one of the best, some of the best duck hunting I've ever done is in Oklahoma. It was unbelievable. Well, was that dry land hunting? Too? Yeah, yeah. yeah but well, was it we, peanut? Yeah, they were landed in peanut fields. We were hunting on a reservoir. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we the way we found the ducks was the dust, you know, coming wow. up from the peanut fields. They were feeding like that. It was wild. Of course, I was from Mississippi, and they're like, we're going mallard hunting. I'm like, what are y'all talking about? Y'all <laughs> yeah. don't know nothing about mallards. <laughs> but it was awesome, that's for sure. Yeah, we filmed some DU hunts and uh, peanuts out in Oklahoma. Yeah. Same thing. You can slam them. When did mm-hmm. you go out there? Hmm. Yeah, I'd love to do that. It's an air tag, by the way. Air tag. Oh, there we go. Okay. Apple Pod Air Tag. Yeah. <laughs> You're close. You're closer than I was. Close yeah. enough. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, uh, look, we've been All going right. for a long time, so I know everybody's got a lot to do. Appreciate y'all being in here. I look up. We appreciate. I don't know if anybody's left on listening, but yeah. we appreciate y'all listening to this podcast. So yeah, and Dudley, I think we're going to add a little bit of stock to the nursery uh, coming okay. up. You know, uh oh. Yeah. So just get ready. Uh, so hopefully some. 
trees will be available pretty soon and don't forget your food plot seed we've got a lot of free shipping promotions going on final forage deer radish spring protein pea it's not too late to get your peas in the ground uh and of course endurance radish yeah that's right check out plantbiologic.com follow us on social media yeah yeah but not me look uh and, and if you don't mind, share the. If you, I'd love for guys to share this podcast with some of their friends. Yeah, that, that would be very That'd helpful. Be nice. To us. Give us nice. a review. Yeah, uh, and follow us uh, on social media. So we're not giving away anything on a toxic closet anymore. I, I didn't have a chance to go get anything. Okay, we'll dig around there later. Yeah, nice. Sounds sure. good. Yeah. I think he'll be gone this he's afternoon. Gone tomorrow, so I'm oh, gonna, we're in. Yeah. All right, sweet. <laughs> right. All right, guys, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, I want to go antelope hunting now. Yeah, let's spend, spend some time in let's Oklahoma. Let's do it. Yeah. Sounds like we need to make a route through there, you know? Do a few it, things yeah, while we're there. Yeah, we do. Cool. And Richie, uh, re- seriously, when he, we need to find out when he's doing that wolf research in Alaska and get you plugged into that. I'm going if you're going on that one. I th- yeah, as long as he lets tag along, we're, we'll be on yeah, it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay, guys. Well, uh, why don't you say goodbye, Dudley? Goodbye, Dudley. Get us out of here, Richie. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Gamekeeper Podcast. And be sure to tune in again. Subscribe to Gamekeeper Farming for Wildlife magazine and don't miss the Mossy Oak Properties Fistful of Dirt podcast with my good buddy, Ronnie Cuz Strickland.